my pastor Mike as you take your seat. Good morning, everyone. I invite you to take your uh, worship folder. We have our scripture reading for today. We're going through a series uh, talking about authentic or a, a genuine spirituality, and it, it's based on encountering God or encounters with God. And as we go through, you'll see that key figures in the scriptures, their lives were transformed, their lives were had a, a, a moment or a, a, a crisis kind of time where they met God and they were never the same. And one of the, one of the figures that I want to start off with is the patriarch, Jacob. Now, Jacob uh, is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And Jacob is a very unique figure in the scriptures. He's a twin, but he's the younger twin. And uh, the story that we're going to read uh, today is that he's, he's more towards the end of his, his uh, wanderings and, and ramblings and his schemes, and he meets up with God. And so we're going to read this passage from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 31. He is about to meet his brother Esau after many years of being apart. Uh, it's a family reunion that he's very afraid of. So let's read this together. I like it when you read God's word out loud with me. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Now, as a, as a pastor, I get some interesting conversations with people when they find out I'm a pastor. I usually hide that. But uh, generally when I, they find out, oh, you're a pastor, immediately I, I can see their wheels turning and they're thinking, okay, how many swear words did I say before uh, I actually found out this guy was a pastor. But one of the things that people say, because we all in conversations, we like to connect with people, so they're trying to think of their own religious sort of experiences, and people will often say to me, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Or I don't believe in organized religion, but I do believe in spirituality. Now, the only spirituality that refers 
you outside of yourself to a genuine spirit is biblical spirituality. Because otherwise, it's just you. Just saying you're a little bit more than a materialist. But when people talk about spirituality, they tend to kind of focus on a few things. One of the things they focus on is people say, I need spirituality to be centered. Okay, I want to be centered. Well, biblical spirituality doesn't center you. It throws you completely off balance. I mean, he takes Jacob and wrestles him to the ground. He didn't center him. He skewered him. He knocked him on his butt. He busted his hip. He broke him. He caused him to have a limp. Some people say, well, spirituality makes me calm. No, true spirituality shows you how broken you really are. True spirituality is not about you become a better you. True spirituality is an encounter with God and with the real God, and that changes you forever. This experience where Jacob wrestles with God and God breaks his hip is the life-defining moment in Jacob's life. He goes from being Jacob, which simply means a deceiver, to Jacob, Israel, the father of a nation, and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the line and the lineage of Jacob through which the Messiah comes. But it's fascinating because there's nothing about Jacob that was worthy of any attention. He's a schemer. He's a charmer. He's a liar. He's kind of a thief, although he covers it up. He, he gets his way no matter what. And yet, the one that God wrestles with is the one no one would even bother with in many ways. I know that, you know, it's a cold... January morning, but theologically, if you could hear me today, you're Jacob. You're Jacob, and God's pursuing you. You got your schemes, you got your agendas, you got your plans, you got your ways of getting blessed, you got your ways of getting your way, you got all of those things. But just like Jacob, you have to come to a place where you wrestle with God where you realize that the one that you've taken hold of for blessing is the one you always wanted and the ones you, you always look for. There's really kind of three things in this passage. It's a narrative, it's a story, but a uh, history, but there are three things, three principles in this story that have to do with true spirituality. The first is that you cannot simply meet God through other people. And you can't simply meet God through religion. You've got to meet God alone. If you notice in the story here, it's, a, it, it's very telling that Jacob has a plan. Now, here, here's the reason Jacob has a plan. is because Esau, his brother, has been mad for many, many years. And he finds out, Jacob finds out, he's hoping that time heals all wounds. But he finds out that Esau is sending 400 soldiers against him. And so Jacob, who always has a plan, decides, okay, I've become a wealthy man. Jacob was a wealthy man of, of all kind of livestock. He had lots of children. At this point, he had 11 children. He sends Esau a huge bribe, I mean gift. <laughs> and he sends him all, you know, the, 
all of this stuff to somehow appease Esau's wrath. And he sends him a gift. And then he takes all the rest of his possessions and he divides them into two. And he sends some wives this way and he sends some wives that way. So that even if Esau comes, he can't take everything away from Jacob. He'll only get one group. But in his scheme, he forgets that when night falls, Jacob is all by himself. Now, I, I kind of know the, the mind of a schemer. And the mind of a schemer is always racing. And the mind of a schemer is always cycling. You know what a mind of a schemer really hates? To be alone. Because then you're alone with your thoughts. Then you're alone with all your past. Then you're alone with all your fears. There is nothing more scary to a schemer than the dark and being alone. And yet it's at this place where he's, he's tried to protect himself. He's tried to secure himself. But instead, he finds himself most vulnerable, most alone. And in this moment, the scripture says, a man comes and begins to wrestle with Jacob. Now, <laughs> this man isn't just a man. This man is God. And so there's a principle here, and that this principle is, is this. If you're to have a real faith, if you're to have a real spirituality, if you're going to really meet God, you have to meet him on your own. Now, in the, in the case of religion or church or all of these different things that, that, that can be a part of our spirituality or a part of our faith, there are, there are numerous dangers. One of the dangers is that you can assume that because your parents have faith, you have faith. There are lots of people who they go to the parents' church, they go to the church of their tradition and their background or their culture or whatever it is, but as soon as they get away from that, they have no faith, they have no spirituality of their own. So yeah, they go Christmas, they go Easter or whatever it is, or they go back to the church they grew up in or whatever it is, but the issue is They've never met God alone, so they have no faith that is personal. There are lots of people that when a church starts rising up and there begins to be some buzz in the community for the church, people start coming to the church and they say, well, all these people who are coming to this church, they couldn't all be wrong. So maybe I'll have the faith that they have and I'll go to the small groups and I'll go to the services and I'll... I'll, I'll and basically what you're talking about is kind of a social faith or a psychological faith. But if they were to leave that church and if they were to leave that group of people, they would just, that faith would just go out because, again, it's not personal. And then where I grew up, there was a lot of cultural faith. There was a lot of cultural Christianity that manifested itself in a lot of public faith. You know, we had days of prayer. We had, you know, national days of prayer. We had all of these different kind of declarations that we were a Christian nation and that we were a Christian people. When I grew up in Mississippi, if you said to somebody, you're not a Christian, you would be saying to them, you're not a good person. And I would take great offense at that because it, they had no, they did not have a personal faith, but they had a civic faith. This is why there are many times that many of us get very disillusioned with those who are proclaimed a kind of national faith, but who have private mistresses. Because it's not personal. 
They're a public manifestation, but there's no personal because they've never encountered God. They just have either a tradition or they have the faith of their fathers or they have kind of a social faith or they have a civic faith. What the story of Jacob tells us, because Jacob was a religious man, what the story of Jacob tells us is that you can go through your whole life and not really meet God, even in a church. Let me tell you why I'm so concerned about this. I mean, I, I probably am telling you, but I went to a funeral some years ago, and uh, it was a religious woman, a very, very devout, very devoted religious woman, and it was a religious service. And the officiant of the service lauded the life of this woman. He basically said that she had done everything that her religion had asked of her. And then he said to the family and friends, we hope someday she will make it to heaven. Now, I didn't do it. I wanted to scream. I wanted to yell. I wanted to say, you... You taught her to do all of those things, and for what? She has no assurance of life after death. She has no assurance of, of really having an advocate in, for her sins, that she still has the possibility, and her family and her friends have no real hope for her, though she did everything you told her to do. I want nothing to do with that. I want you to have nothing to do with that. I don't want you to say, I think I'll get into heaven because of this or because of that. I want you to know God. I want you to encounter the living God. Because here's what he says. He so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, an encounter with God binds the life of God to your life so that as long as God exists, you will exist. And not in some wistful, un, you know, unwanted life, but a life that corresponds to who you are and what you long for now. See, there's a, one of my favorite teachers or preachers is a man who's passed away many years ago, but his name is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a, a preacher in London, and even in the days when religion was waning in England, uh, Lloyd-Jones's church, Westminster Chapel, regularly had 1,200 to 1,500 people coming to hear him preach. He was so anointed of the Lord. But he told this story, and it stuck with me that there was a young man, about 18 years old, who came after a service, I think it was a Sunday night service, and came after the service, and the young man said to Dr. Jones, he said, I have spent my whole life in this church. I'm from, a, you know, Dr. Jones knew his family. They were prominent in the church. They were known for being a good family. They were known for being a religious family. And this young man said, when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I began to realize that your sermons could really be helpful to me. And I, I began to take notes and, and record your sermons. And 
I, I began to really study what you were preaching and what you were teaching. He said, in every way, anyone would have looked at me and said, that, that is a good young man. He said, but for the first time tonight, I've met Jesus. And now I realize it wasn't just that I wanted God in my life. Now God is my life. See, Lloyd-Jones has influenced millions of people. But when he told the story of an encounter with God, he told the story of an 18-year-old who had grown up in his church, who had had all the good teaching, who even recorded notes, who was probably more disciplined than most of us. And yet that young man, who in every way looked perfectly Christian, had not met God until that night. And he said, I did not want to leave here tonight without telling you. See, Jacob was alone, and it was at that alone time that God began to wrestle with him. See, when I'm talking to you about a personal faith, I'm saying it is a faith in which God himself begins to wrestle with you. You see, in many ways, wrestling, you could say wrestling is an interruption. I had this friend, my closest friend in college was about six foot six. He's a big, huge guy. I could have played football, but he was just a little... Too, too, didn't have enough killer instinct for that. And so he was, he was a six-foot-six theologian. But everywhere he went, all, all five-foot-ten guys wanted to jump him. I mean, every single place would be walking. All of a sudden, two or three guys would jump out of the bushes and just want to wrestle with him to test their strength against him. I used to go, does this happen to you all the time? He says, everywhere I go. <laughs> and you start to realize, you know, Someone wrestling with you is an interruption. And then when you start really wrestling, it's discomforting. You know, it's uncomfortable. It's an intrusion on you. It's interference with you. You see, real spirituality, when you've really encountered God, He interrupts your life. He intrudes on your life. He discomforts your life. If not so, you've not met Him. He intrudes on your sexuality. He makes you wrestle with your impurity. He intrudes on your ideas of greed and your ideas of materialism. And he makes you wrestle with those things. He intrudes and says, I want to be your life. I want to be the blessing. See, when he intrudes, it gets personal. And and somehow, it's so funny, people have often said this throughout the centuries, they said religion is a good thing as long as it doesn't get personal. (laughs) And what Jacob teaches us is until it gets personal, it's not real. Has it gotten personal for you yet? You say, yeah, you've personally insulted me today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am kind of in your face. And you're like, wow, I could have stayed at home on live stream and, and watched this a little easier. But you're here today because God wants to wrestle with you. Because he doesn't want it to be fake. He doesn't want it to be half genuine. He wants it to be fully genuine. Start to finish. Uncompromising. So the second thing of true spirituality in this, this and real spirituality in this, this narrative is that When you meet God, you meet God to get the blessing. You meet with God to get the blessing. That's what Jacob shows to us. Now, the story is so interesting because it's 
old. I mean, this is probably a 3,500-year-old story or so. I mean, it's really old. And yet, at the same time, it's going on exactly today. See, Jacob, uh, Jacob was the second son. They were twins, but Jacob was born second. Esau, his brother, was the firstborn son. But it was more than that. Esau was the son that Isaac loved. Esau was a man's man. He was hairy. You know, he was a hunter. He was, uh, he was in every way like Isaac. And, and Isaac had a favorite. And the favorite was Esau. And you know, here's, a, here's an interesting thing that studies have shown. That when a family has a favorite, it poisons the family. Because the one who is favored is poisoned. Because none of the other siblings like the favored one. And then the ones who are not favored feel the rejection of the father. And so Esau and Jacob lived in a poisoned family. One of the reasons that I believe in the, the truthfulness and the, the authenticity of the scriptures is because it never sugarcoats anything. As a matter of fact, just about every family in the Old Testament is dysfunctional and it doesn't hide it whatsoever. I mean, all of these great patriarchs, thank God we're not from their family. Because it's a mess. And Esau poisoned, was poisoned by the favoritism of his father. And Jacob was poisoned by the favoritism of his father. So we get this weird story where in, the, in that part of the, of the ancient world, the oldest son always got the most of all the inheritance. The bulwark of the inheritance went to the oldest son. And so not only had he lived a life of his father's blessing, but he was going to get the father's blessing as Isaac got close to death. Now, what they did is they did a ceremony and they announced and he laid hands on his son and all of this takes place. So he announced the day that was going to happen. Jacob finds out about it. Uh, He prepares, he dresses up, smells like Esau, puts some hairy stuff on himself so he feels a little bit like Esau. Uh, Isaac had by this time is old and blind. And so Jacob runs in before Esau and says, Father, bless me with, I guess he was able to sort of imitate the voice a bit. And he says, Father, bless me. And uh, Esau, I mean, Esau, who wanted to have the blessing, gets there after Jacob has received all the blessing. And of course, Esau is furious and wants to kill Jacob. Now, Think a little bit through that story with me. Jacob doesn't get any material blessings from that. Because since Esau wants to kill him, Jacob has to leave with just whatever's on his back. He has to get out of there. He doesn't get to be the firstborn son because he's still the secondborn. So why is it, if you think through the scriptures here, why is it that, that Jacob was willing to go through that pretense? I believe it's this. He had never heard his father's voice speaking love over him. And he was willing, knowing he wouldn't get any material blessing, knowing that he wouldn't get to be the firstborn or anything else, he was willing to go through the entire pretense just so he could hear the father say to him, you are my beloved son. I love you. You're the one I've always wanted. You're the one that has always been there for me. I think the blessing that Jacob was looking for were the words of affirmation from his father because he got nothing else. But here's the problem. 
he knew Isaac was not speaking to him. So even though he heard the words, they couldn't come into the heart because he knew the words were not true. So he, are you tracking with me? So he runs off, having to get away from Esau, and uh, you know, and 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 his life is 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 thrown into kind of a turmoil at this point. So let me think through that for a little bit more with you. You and I are just like Jacob. We long for someone outside of ourselves to actually speak over us what we long to be true. We especially long to hear that we are valued, that we are significant, that who we are, what we do, what we have, all of these things... The longing is not for us to just self-proclaim it, but to hear someone who we believe has weight or who has some semblance of glory speak it over us. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about the blessing here, he says that it's a deep blessing. It goes deep to the heart, and he calls it, he codes it as joy. It's the drivenness inside of you. It's the... It's the longing inside of you. It's the resolve inside of you. I will find joy. Now, the reason that it's important that you kind of put these two together, blessing and joy, is because people use bless in all kinds of ways. <laughs> Some time ago, I went, uh, I went to Atlanta, and, uh, and I sneezed a few times, and nobody said anything. And then I came back to New York, and I sneezed, and everybody goes, God bless you. I heard 20,000 people say, God bless you. You know, I was sitting there going, why do people in New York say, God bless you when you sneeze? Are they, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, but it means almost nothing. You know, I, I mean, I don't know what God they worship. I don't know what blessing means to them or anything else. So we throw around that word bless. In almost a frivolous fashion. So it's important that you get that when we're talking about the blessing, we're really talking about everything that the longing of your heart is looking for. That, there, that, that it's not just happiness. Happiness is, is circumstantial. Happiness is when things are going the way you want them to go, or they're going right, or they're going better than you expected. And happiness can be taken away just by the change of circumstance. We're talking about a deep sense of almost unconditional sense of worth and value that is unshakable. That there's a a weight inside of you of glory. There's There's a beauty inside of you. There's a strength inside of you. That if everything falls apart around you, you still have something that you say, this is my joy and it cannot be taken away. Well, Lewis, C.S. Lewis talked about this a lot, and one of the things that he talked about that I thought was powerful, and he really unpacks this a whole lot, and I just give you a little glimpse of it. He says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, there, there's a sense in which what Lewis is saying here, that you could have good parents... And you could have a good church, and you could have a good marriage, and you could have good kids or good 
whatever it might be. You could have all of that, and yet inside of you, there's still a discontentment, or there's still a longing. And that longing can only be satisfied by a value, a weight that comes into your life from another world, from another realm. Are you tracking with me on this? Well, here uh, Jacob has been looking for this joy. He's been looking for this blessing. So the same poison that poisoned him and Esau, Jacob poisons his own family. He makes one woman his favorite. Rachel was his favorite. He had three other sort of uh, one wife and two other kind of wives. And he has 11 children by these, these four different women. But the only child he loves is the child of the only woman that he loves. And so Joseph is his favorite. All the others he could care less about. And so the same rivalry and competition that he experienced with Esau, now he does and poisons his own family. See, if you look at Jacob's life, you'll see this. He was always looking for something he couldn't find. You know... Then he meets God. And you might ask, well, it says he wrestles a man, but if you read it closely, you realize he's not wrestling a man. He's wrestling God. And Jacob figures out he's wrestling God. Here's one of the ways he figures it out. His, His hip is wrenched from the hip bone. Utterly destroys his hip bone so that it is never, it is never recovered again. And normally, if you if you see somebody and they say, Man, my hip was completely destroyed, they'll say, that person hit me with such force. Like, I love to watch football, and I never see in football that they just touch. It's force against force. 300-pound men that can run under 5 second 40s, hitting each other with incredible force, breaking bones, concussing, doing different things in the midst of that because it's force against force. But if you notice in this text, it doesn't say that. It says, he touched his hip. Here's what Jacob knew. This guy's holding back. This guy, with one touch, takes my hip out. I'm holding on to God, is what he's saying. Then secondly, you know, <laughs> the person he's wrestling with says, the sun's coming up, i got to get out of here. Now, you could believe in vampires. <laughs> or you could understand what he means here. The Bible says no one can see the face of God and live. So once the sun comes up, he's going to see who he's really wrestling with. And so, so uh, it is not because, you know, he's going to melt in the sun. It's because Jacob's going to melt in the face of the sun. And so he's, he's, he's recognizing this is God that I'm dealing with. And then the, the last one that shows that it's God is first he asks Jacob, Jacob, what's your name? Which means deceiver. And God says, no, that's not going to be your name anymore. From this moment on, you will be Israel. You are one who has wrestled with God. You're one who's striven with God, and you have prevailed. So now his whole character has changed, whereas his whole life was striving but not prevailing. Now his name means he has prevailed. And from that name, a nation comes. And from that name, the Messiah comes. Pretty powerful how God changed. But but Jacob goes, okay, you know my name, and you've given me a name, so what's your name? 
And if you read the text there, and, and you know, in the English, it probably doesn't come out quite as well in, as in Hebrew, but it's a sarcastic. You, it, you're asking, what is my name? Basically, he's saying, you know who I am. You know who has a hold of you right now. So the, the, the thing that begins to be fascinating is Jacob realizes he has God. Now, a rational man would go, oh, okay, I'll let you go. Because he's asking, let me go. Let me go. The sun's coming up. Let me go. Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go. You're what I'm looking for. You're what I've been searching for. You're what all my schemes are about. See, in that moment, Jacob made a transformation in his encounter with God that he never turned back on. Up to that point, Jacob was a religious man, but he used God as a means to his blessing. He used God as a means to his happiness. He used God as a means to his satisfaction, and he never was satisfied. In that moment, Jacob says, it may cost me my life to hold on to you, but I am not letting you go until I have what I've been looking for my whole life. See, isn't it interesting? It's the blessing of God that changes us. How many of us over the years, maybe none of you, maybe it's just me and where I grew up, but people always trying to make people afraid of God. People always trying to make people afraid of consequences. It's funny how many parents use anxiety to try to get faith in their kids. I'm not sure anxiety ever produces faith in anybody. But most of us, or many of us, have been around, you've got to repent, you've got to turn or burn, you know, all of this kind of, uh, the consequences of your sin are going to find you out. Here's, here's what happens when all you ever do is fear going to hell. Or all you ever do is fear the punishment of God. You cannot love what you fear. You only are trying to avoid consequences. And it doesn't say fear the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It says love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Now you might say to me, and some of you are very quick, and you say, but it also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, because he's the Lord. And because you start to realize he's not you. And you, I mean, here's the thing. God in this story with Jacob feigns weakness, but he shows him with just one touch what he could do to him. Yet, it's probably worth it to respect that. It's probably worth it to realize you've got a tiger by its tail. It's probably not stupid to do so, but what Jacob says is there's a blessing here which will change my life. I'm not going to let you go. Even if I die, I'm going to get this blessing. Well, the third thing. Are you still tracking with me? I'm the only one having fun today. <laughs> Jacob, meets, Jacob meets God at his point of weakness, at Jacob's point of weakness. But at the same time, God meets, meets Jacob in his weakness. See, if you ask the question, who won the wrestling match? They both did. But Jacob won it this way. He triumphed through his weakness. See, what Jacob did is, is he realized 
he realized that his muscle, every muscle of his being, every bone of his being, is now pressed up against every muscle, every bone of this one that he's wrestling with. Um, You might ask the question if you're thinking through this, why didn't God just tell Jacob what he wanted him to know without all the wrestling? Well, this picture is a picture of you and me. You and I don't learn except through frustration. We don't learn unless, unless it's a crisis. We don't learn without some agony. We don't pay attention. We don't go deep. I hate to see this, say this, but we're all superficial. We want easy answers and easy results. And God's truth and his spirituality is not a mile wide and an inch deep. It is a mile wide and a mile deep. I mean, it, it's bigger. It's more wonderful than we can possibly get through cliches and through pat answers. So Jacob, you know, has a stubbornness about him, and that stubbornness is met by the Lord's unrelenting pursuit of Jacob. You have to come to the place where you begin to realize that everything I'm looking for is found in wrestling with God. Now, it's fascinating to me that some people stay in this sense, okay, I'm just following God because I don't want bad things to happen. And yet the Bible says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. See, you really will stay in here not because you're afraid, even though there's something worthy of being afraid of. You stay in here because you believe the kindness. You believe the blessing. You believe the longing that you've always looked for is going to be met right here with him. Otherwise, people leave the faith, they leave the religion, because all they're looking for is escape, or all they're looking for is pleasure. It's this wrestling with God. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, says in this reference to this, he says, Jacob is a perfect picture of a completed Christian in many ways. There's this incredible blessing, a new name, a new character, transformation, victory, but there's also a limp. I mean, as long as we live in this world, I wish, friends, I wish he would just take away all of my, any disposition towards sin. I wish he would take away anything but my love for Jesus and everything else would be gone. But there still exists in me and in you a weakness, a tendency towards Jacobness. We live to dance, but with a limp. We shout, we we praise, but with a limp. Does this make sense to you? Well, this is the last part of this. There's a triumph that God himself orchestrates here through losing, which is a picture, really, of what's going on with Jesus. If you think about it, God is omnipotent. God is, is infinite. There's no possibility of measuring God. So how much does omnipotence weigh? When you think about wrestling, it's always about weight class. When people wrestle, they don't wrestle outside of their weight class. Sometimes uh, at wrestling matches, I've seen where they actually have the scale so that nobody can cheat and weigh more as they get on the mat because there's an unfair advantage to having a greater weight than your opponent. And so if you ask the question, okay, Jacob is wrestling with God. He's wrestling with omnipotence. He's wrestling with the infinite. So in other words, God has to, in a sense, in this moment, feign weakness so that Jacob can wrestle and win. 
It's a little bit like those of you fathers or mothers playing sports with your kids. And you don't want to crush that kid. So you, you, you feign a bit of weakness because you love your child and you want to encourage them. In some ways, what has happened here is God has held back in that moment and he's wrestled in weakness so Jacob can win. But Jacob, it's interesting, in a sense, he wrestles, but he wrestles for himself. And he wrestles to get salvation. He wrestles to get blessing. But Jesus himself became weak for you. He he endured death. He endured the cross. He wrestled with sin and death, not so that he could be blessed, but so that you could be blessed. Jesus held on at the cost of his own life to get the blessing for us. Jacob held on at the cost of his own life or at the seeming cost of his life, but just to be blessed for himself. But Jesus held on at the cost of his own life for your sake and for mine. See, if, if what I'm saying today can help frame an encounter with God, and you start to recognize what God does in order to encounter you, instead of running from him, you will run to him. I mean, at some point, doesn't it just get weary of looking for blessing in all the wrong places? Of having given yourself to things like Jacob did that do not, do not satisfy. I mean, I'm just going to ask, I'm asking you today, meet with God alone, you and him. Go after blessing. Say, I won't leave you. I will not let you go without this blessing. Will you listen to one more thing? I know the me- the music's playing, but would you hear this one more thing? A blessing is always verbal. A blessing is always verbal. Do you notice it in this passage that we read, it said, and God blessed Jacob. There was a verbal blessing. It doesn't tell us what God said. It doesn't say what the Lord said to Jacob. It just says that he spoke a verbal blessing over him. And I think in one way it doesn't tell us what he said because he has something to say to each of you. But it is the words of value and worth and significance that you've always looked for. How do I know that? Because on Jesus' day of baptism, the Father blessed the Son. And when he spoke over the Son, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is... The weight of the universe, the God of all gods, the king of all kings is speaking over his son. Someone who has weight and value himself is speaking to the son and saying, you're my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Here's what the Bible teaches, that if you are in Christ, if your life is in Christ, then you are loved as Christ. And not on the basis of performance or behavior, but on the basis of your faith in Christ, then you are hearing those same words thundering from heaven in your heart and in your ears right now, whether you're a son or a daughter. If you're a daughter, you're hearing, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you're a son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, it is his kindness. It is his declaration. He wrestled with death so he could give you life. And so you could live in the blessing. Will you stand with me? What'd you do? Would you close your eyes for a minute so this won't seem silly?
but whatever it would be to kind of wrestle, whatever that means, or like they say in Georgia, wrestle, I think it is. But uh, whatever it is, just to take that pose. Jesus is here. He wants to interrupt your life, discomfort your life, intrude on your life. He wants to turn you from a Jacob to an Israel. But he wants to do so to bless you, to give you joy. All you have to do is admit your weakness. See, you never wrestle with God out of strength. Because all he has to do is touch your hip. And he'll show you who has strength. The stubbornness of Jacob, the, the resistance and the plans and everything that went awry. And they, although he'd done everything he could, he found himself alone at night. But it's there that transformation came. He was never the same. Would you say these words with me? You can test them out with us right now, but you can take them home and, and, and see where God leads you. Would you say these words? I'm alone with you, God. You have intruded. You have discomforted me. You have interfered. You are wrestling with me. I will not let you go until I really receive this blessing. A joy unspeakable. I come to you in weakness. Thanking you for your weakness. That Jesus clung to the cross. He held on in the midst of death. So that I can have life. Because I am in Christ. I am loved as Christ. Would you let my voice at least symbolize the voice of the Father? This is speaking to each daughter in here. Daughter, you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Do not fight or resist that. Don't wrestle with that. Hear that. Your name is beloved. Not failure, not loser, not any other negative term. Beloved. Sons, would you hear this? The Father speaks over you today, and He has spoken through the cross, and He's validated it through the resurrection. Son, you are my beloved son. And even though your soul may spring up and say, but you don't know what I've done, and you don't know how I've, how I've messed up, He says, no, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. He is placing in your heart a joy that no one in this world can take away from you. Not even you. If you choose to receive it, if you choose to live in it, if you choose to believe it. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Jesus says, the joy, the joy he has, he gives to you. A joy that no one can take away. Now you might say, but my life is a mess. It doesn't matter. The mess might be what has led you to wrestle with God. Focus on the end. He's the end. He's not your means to the end. Lord, we uh, seal what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.
I thought I was doing so well on time. Sorry about that. We have, uh, we have prayer ministers up here. If there's anything you want to pray about today, it's good to just speak it out loud and have someone else pray with you. God bless you. We'll see you next week. As you